0: Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to subscribe to our Journey Callaway YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. Warning, if you are highly competitive like me, you are not going to like this very much, at least not until the end, so just hang with me, okay? Don't give up on me. In our current climate, there are three unique dynamics that have created a perfect storm and caused so much confusion and division in the church, and I want to talk about them for just a second as we begin. The first one is this. Everything is politicized, but you didn't need me to tell you that, did you? Everything is politicized today. The virus, COVID-19, it has become politicized. It's not just a matter of facts. It's not just a matter of what scientists say, of what doctors say, of what our medical community says. Nope, it's completely politicized. Everybody's trying to put a spin on it. Masks are politicized. Of course they're politicized. You know, It's not just a matter of, am I doing this for the benefit of the other people around me? Nope, now there's, everybody sees a political agenda hiding behind decisions around masks. Our school decisions are politicized. I mean, here in our local community, we got two different school systems who when school began in the fall, they each made slightly different approaches and took slightly different uh, angles on how to start. And here's what amazed me. If you were a school board member of either one of the school systems, I felt for you because I get it. You made your decisions, two different approaches, and then I watched you get hammered on both sides. It didn't matter what decision you made, it was a wrong to at least half the people. That's because everything's politicized these days. You couldn't go right. Now both school systems are pretty much united in their approach and in their front, but it doesn't matter because, again, we're not just basing things off facts. Everything has become political. Doctors, even their opinions, it's no longer, well, we can trust a doctor. No, we assume every doctor has some political angle or political agenda behind what they're telling us. There is no one and nothing that is neutral anymore, is there? That's the first dynamic. The second dynamic is what's being called the cancel culture. The cancel culture simply is this. If I disagree with you on one thing, then I'm going to discount everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done, no matter how good it may have been. We're just canceling you. Now, this is not new. This has been around for a long time. As some of you know, I grew up as a preacher's kid so i watched this happen in the church when my dad pastored. I've watched it happen now that I'm pastoring. I can't tell you how many times I have been a part of or observed conversations where someone began with this. Hey, I want to let you know God has used this church or hey, God has used you to change my life, to change our family. It's been so incredible. But, and you know when the but's coming, it can't be good. But you made this decision But you said this, but I didn't appreciate that, but I didn't agree with you on that. And so we are leaving the church. And every time somebody says that to me, I don't get offended. There's nothing to be offended about. I don't get offended. But I just sit there and I think to myself, well, that doesn't seem so smart. That seems like you're self-sabotaging because you just told me all of these things that God has done in your life by being a part of this group of people. And now because you disagree on one thing, you're going to remove yourself from a group of people God is using for your good? Doesn't make much sense to me. But hey, to each his own. The cancel culture, it is alive and well. But it is this third dynamic that I want to spend the majority of our time today talking about. Some of you, many of you maybe, will be familiar with this. You've all run into it in some level, in some way, in some shape, form, or fashion. It goes by a lot of different names, but you may know of it as culture war. Christianity. Culture war Christianity. I have spent most of my life bumping into, running into, and being around culture war Christianity. And I've spent all of my time since we began this church trying to help us avoid it because it is a perversion. And that's a strong word, but I use it intentionally. Culture war Christianity is a perversion of the message of Jesus. So let me explain it to you. In short, culture war Christians always feel like they're under attack. Culture war Christians feel like they're under attack from liberalism, from secularism, from the government. They always fear they're going to lose something Well, they're trying to take away my freedoms. They're trying to take away our right to meet as a church. They're trying to take away our right to preach the truth. They're trying to take away our right to believe what we believe. They're always afraid they're going to lose something. They always feel like they're under attack. And because of that, they feel perfectly justified to attack back. As a matter of fact, The goal of a culture war Christian is, well, I'm just going to win at any cost. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And as a result, they're always known for what they're against. They're never known for what they're for. And they're always far more obsessed with winning than they are with loving, interestingly enough. Ironically, you might say. But that is what culture war Christianity looks like. Now, I grew up with a front row seat to this because I grew up a part of a denomination that if I named them, you would go, oh, yeah, they're pretty well synonymous with culture war Christianity. And for 20 years, I went every single year to the national annual gathering of this denomination. And I watched speaker after speaker after speaker talk about the culture war we were in and how as Christians and as churches we had to rise up and here's what we should do. And then I watched them every year parade politicians across the stage who fanned the flames and stoked the fires of this culture war going on. And when it became election year, well, that's when you knew you got the biggest politicians because, after all, they were looking for some votes. And if they could convince you that they were going to help you win the culture war, well, your votes were guaranteed for them. And so I watched this happen over and over and over again, 20 years in a row. And you know what I learned in the middle of this? Here's what I learned. When you engage in culture war Christianity, what sets up the church to be a tool of politicians rather than the conscience of the nation Listen, Jesus didn't start the church, this movement we call the church, so we could be a tool of politicians, so we could be a pawn for some political party. But that's what happens when you engage as a church, when you engage as Christians in a culture war. You're willing to win at all costs, and so you look to politics to give you the power you need to win, and the politicians look back and say, perfect. they will be a great tool to help me get reelected. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus started the church, among other things, to be the conscience of a community, the conscience of a nation, ultimately the conscience of a world. And all I mean by that is this, that as followers of Jesus, those of us who carry the label Christian, we have been called not just to teach, but more importantly, to model the values that Jesus came to introduce to this world. Values such as loving everyone unconditionally. Values such as showing dignity, respect, and worth for every human being. Values such as honoring the dignity of life from conception to the coffin. Values. Values such as, you know what, I may not agree with you. You may even be my enemy, but I'm still going to love you and I'm willing to forgive you. These values that Jesus came to introduce to the world that were so new and so different and so countercultural. Well, as followers of his... We should, not by judging people, not by preaching at people, but just by living out these values, we should become the conscience of our communities, of our nation, ultimately, of our world. People should take note and go, you know what? Maybe I do need to change the way I live. I see how they value people. I I don't value people that way. I see how they honor others. I don't honor others that way. I see how they treat those people. I don't treat those people that way. This is what we've been called to do, not to be a tool of a politician, to be the conscience of a nation, to raise the tide, if you will, to lift everyone's eyes and go, nope, there is a higher standard. There is a better way to live life. We are not just to teach that. We are most importantly to model that. And when we fail to do that and instead we try to create change, we try to win, we try to push forward our agenda through political means, well, we can win at the political game, but when the church wins politically, the church loses. More on that in just a minute. This is the fourth and final episode of Talking Points, the perfect blend of politics, race, and religion. And as I've told you throughout this series, the goal of this series is not to push or endorse some political agenda. We're not talking about political agenda because for those of us who follow Jesus, we have been given a higher agenda and we have been given a better agenda, which is why I have asked us all, those of us who carry the label Christian, I've asked us this question. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith instead of creating a version of faith that supports your politics? In other words, are you willing to take what Jesus taught and go, "You know what? He is our leader. His agenda is my agenda." And now I'll look at what I think politically or who I align with politically, but I'm going to compare them to the agenda of Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Instead of looking at your political party and then trying to create a version of Jesus that lines up with that. If you think Jesus would be a Republican if he were here because, well, you're a Republican. If you think he'd be a Democrat because, well, you're a Democrat it just makes sense. You'd probably create a version of Jesus just to support your political views. If you have hope that a political party or politician will usher in the kingdom of God or bring America back to God, you've fallen into the trap of creating a version of faith that just supports your politics. Jesus did not come to endorse any political view. Jesus came to introduce a brand new worldview. He came to introduce something entirely different. Jesus did not take sides. He was the king who came to reverse the order. Of things, Which is why when he was on this earth, he didn't align with the Roman authorities, nor did he align with the Jewish religious leaders. And you know why? Because both of those parties, if you will, well, they were both based on a faulty assumption. The assumption was that power and resources are to be leveraged primarily for the benefit of the powerful and the resourced. And well, Jesus just refused to play that game. And it left his closest followers scratching their heads. It left the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious leaders calling for his head. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he refused to engage in this. He refused to play this game. He played an entirely different game. Now, several years after the resurrection, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, well, he had started out trying to take the heads of followers of Jesus and put an end to this movement until he met Jesus and then he became a follower. And once Paul became a follower, he had some catching up to do. So he would sit down with people like Peter who'd spent so much time with Jesus. He sat down with James, the brother of Jesus, and he said, okay, tell me, because I couldn't understand it when I was watching. I couldn't understand it when I heard about it. Tell me why Jesus did what he did. Why did he approach things the way he approached things if he was who he claimed to be? And clearly he is. Well, Why did he allow the things to happen that happened to him? So Peter and James and others began to explain to him the reason behind Jesus' approach when he was on this earth. And Paul, as he's explaining that to some of the readers, some of the Christians in the city of Philippi, here's what he wrote and here's how he explained it. And we've talked about this before, but as we wrap up this series, I think we need to come back to it again because some of us have clearly forgotten How Jesus called us to live and the game Jesus has called us to play. So Paul, talking about Jesus, says this. Who being in very nature God. Now do not miss this because the people who were closest to Jesus were convinced that he was God in human flesh. Not just sent from God, God in a human body. They were convinced of it. They were convinced because of what they saw, what they heard, and what they experienced. Now, assuming that's true, and maybe you don't believe that's true, and that's okay. I get that. That's a big thing to believe. But just assume for a second that Jesus really is God. Well, isn't that the position we all want to be in? If he's God, then he's guaranteed to win. If he's God, then nobody can beat him. If he's God, well, he's going to get whatever agenda he wants. Which is why what Paul writes next is so surprising. He says, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. <laughs> he didn't use the fact he was God for his own benefit. How strange is that? I mean, we're all trying to become God. We're all trying to act like we're God. Let's be honest. We, we have God complexes, don't we? We, we want to have that kind of control because it guarantees we get our way. It guarantees we win. And here Jesus is. And he has all the power to win. And he decides he's not going to use it. He has all the power to win. And he doesn't use it to win the game. What Paul is trying to help us understand is this. Jesus didn't play to win. Jesus played to lose. Which rubs me the wrong way. Because I want to win at everything. It rubs me the wrong way because I'm like, are you kidding me? You had a chance to win and be undefeated? And you didn't play to win. Who plays plays to lose except a loser? But what Paul came to understand, because Paul was a highly competitive guy, what Paul came to understand was that Jesus wasn't approaching this the way you and I approach it. You see, Jesus played a different game with different rules. And it had a very different win. Jesus didn't play to win. Jesus played to lose so the other team could win. So you and I could win. Jesus lived his life and took all of that power that would have guaranteed a win for himself and he set it aside so we could win instead. And by us winning, he ultimately won, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. How would Jesus set aside his power? What would he do to lose so that we could win? Paul says here's exactly what he did. Rather, he made himself nothing It's so ironic, isn't it? We all want to be something in life. Jesus chose to be nothing. We all want to be somebody. Jesus chose to be a nobody. The one person who's ever walked the planet, who had every right to be a somebody and expect everybody to treat him like a somebody, said, nope, I'm not interested in being a somebody. I'm choosing willfully to be a nobody. I'm going to make myself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now what do servants do? Servants wake up every single morning thinking about how they can help the person and benefit the person they serve. Servants wake up every single morning thinking about how they can help the person they serve make progress instead of making progress on their own. Servants wake up every morning honestly thinking about how they can lose to help somebody else win. Now, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, if you're not, you get a pass on this. But for those of us who call ourselves Christians, if God in human flesh, our Savior and our leader Jesus, if he willfully chose to be a servant, then don't you think that's what we ought to be known for as his followers? I mean, don't you think when somebody thinks about you, the first word that should come to mind is the word that describes your leader? They should think, there's a servant. When they think about us as Christians, us as a church, don't you think the first thing that should come to mind is there's a group of people who are willing to benefit somebody else. They'll do whatever it takes to help the people around them. Listen, the church never wins. Don't miss this. The church never wins by fighting for our rights. The church doesn't look most like Jesus when we're standing for the truth. The church doesn't look most like Jesus when we are defending the Bible or defending God. Let me me help you here. God doesn't need any defending. Neither does his word. He's perfectly capable of defending himself. We do not look most like Jesus when we're doing that, when we're fighting the battle to win the culture war. The church looks most like Jesus when we're defending other people's rights rather than our own. The church looks most like Jesus when we're giving away rather than demanding our way the church looks most like jesus when we're serving rather than being served and if you find something in you resisting that going no no no, i don't want to go down that path and i don't want to give up that power and i don't want to lose that way okay congratulations you now understand exactly how jesus earliest followers felt You understand why his disciples would resist this over and over and over again. You understand why, even though Jesus kept sitting them down and explaining, here's what's about to happen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten, flogged. Ultimately, I'm going to be crucified on a Roman cross. He would explain this to them again and again and again, and they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't accept it. And they were still shocked when it happened. Because losers get crucified on a Roman cross. And they didn't think they were following a loser. It's why as Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, now think about this, he is on on his way to Jerusalem knowing he's about to be arrested. And on the way, he looks at the guys one more time and he tries to explain to them. He says, here's what's about to happen to me when we get to the city. And you know what they do? They start arguing behind them. And he turns around and he says, whoa, 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 what are you guys talking about? And they were arguing over which of them would be the greatest when Jesus set up his kingdom, when he won. Because that's what they thought he was there to do. He's going to do away with the Roman powers and with the Jewish religious leaders. He's setting up his kingdom. He is going to win. And so they're arguing who gets to sit on his right and on his left. It's so insensitive. It, it, quite honestly, it's so naive. But... Losers end up on a Roman cross. They were there to win the game, and they assumed at that time Jesus was there to win the game. They didn't realize he was playing an entirely different game. But after the resurrection, everything changed for them. After the resurrection, they got it. After the resurrection, they understood, oh my goodness, we are following a leader who's playing a different game with different rules and an entirely different win. And here's what's so ironic. You can go read this for yourself. Read it in Acts or in some of the other New Testament documents. After the resurrection, there is not one single instance of these guys fighting over who was going to be the greatest. Not one instance of them making a power grab. Not one instance of them trying to win for their own benefit because they had just seen what it looks like to win an entirely different game. And so they chose to follow their leader. They chose to lose so that somebody else could win. They had seen Jesus die on a Roman cross, willingly lay down his power, not guarantee a win by being God, and give his life for their sins, for your sins, for my sins. They knew he had done it so they could win, so we could win. And they finally got it. The church, you and me, we are not at our best when we are fighting for our rights, when we're demanding what we deserve, when we're trying to win some culture war, when we're trying to get our agenda accomplished through political means. We're not at our best then. We're actually losing then. We are at our best when we choose to follow our leader, the leader who, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, even though he could have. But he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness when he didn't have to. And then being found in appearance as a man. Think about this. God humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not play to win, at least not the game the world was playing. He played to lose, to lose his life on a cross so that you could win, so that I could win, so that we could have our sins forgiven. So, if you want to put your hope in a political party, you go right ahead. But you're going to end up disappointed. I'm going to put my hope in our servant Savior. I'm going to put my hope in the one who chose to lay down his life for you and for me. And you know what? As a church, if we will choose to follow his example, we will have our greatest impact. We will make our biggest difference, not by trying to win for our own benefit, but by being willing to lose for the benefit of serving somebody else. This is why as long as I have any influence here, we will never be a political church We're not going to be a Republican church. We're not going to be a Democrat church. You know why? We're going to be a Jesus church because it is His message that changes lives. It is His message that transforms people. It is His message and His grace and His love and His forgiveness that every single person in our communities need. And it's His message that will make the biggest difference. So, If you wear the label Christian, can I ask you one more time? Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith instead of creating a version of faith that just supports your politics? Will you, will you not be first and foremost party people, political people? Will you be first and foremost kingdom people? And will you follow the leader who laid down his life so that others could win? Jesus did not play to win the way the world wins. Jesus played to lose so the other team could win. And that is how you and I as a church should be as well. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the humility to follow your example, Jesus, the humility to be willing to lose ourselves, be willing to lose our own benefits, be willing to to lose what we want for the sake of the people around us, for the sake of them experiencing your love, your grace, your mercy, for the sake of them understanding that they're unconditionally loved, forgiven, and invited to be a part of your family. Would you help us to put others before ourselves day after day after day? And the irony is, when we play to lose that way, well, in the long run, we actually win because, in the long run, we experience what really matters in life. Most of all, we become more personal with who matters most, with you. And we know you better, we become more like you because, Jesus, you did not play to win, you played to lose. So we could win. Help us to do the same. For those of you who may be watching and you've never had a relationship with God that feels personal. Maybe you grew up in church or around church. Maybe you know a lot of the stuff. It's just never felt personal. Maybe it's never been personal to you what Jesus did for you. What he gave up for you. How much he lost for you. I want to invite you right where you are to make it personal today. And all you have to do is tell Jesus simply this. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for dying and rising again, so I could start again, have a fresh start, a new beginning, so I could be forgiven and a part of your family. Thank you for losing, so I could win. Now I choose to follow you and to follow your example as best I can from this point forward. If that's a decision you're making right now, we'd love to help you figure out your next step, We'd love to celebrate with you. If you'll grab your phone and you will just text START NEW, all one word, to 94090, we'll be in touch with you. We'd love to talk more about your next step and this decision that you made. We are so excited for you. Father, would you help us as a church to be a group of people who model this in our communities? It can be irrational. It can be uncomfortable. People often don't understand but help us to follow your example, Jesus, and to lay down our lives on behalf of others. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey Calway app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church, be sure to visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.